Good evening. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep with some old familiar stories that you haven't heard in a while. Links to every story can be found in the show notes at our website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight's story, The Brother and Sister, by Mary Shelley. It is well known that the hatred borne by one family against another and the strife of parties, which often led to bloodshed in the Italian cities during the Middle Ages, so vividly described by Shakespeare and Romeo and Juliet, was not confined to the Montecchi and Capiletti of Verona, but existed with equal animosity in almost every other town of that beautiful peninsula. The greatest men among them were the victims in crowds of exiles, families who were but the day before were in the full enjoyment of the luxuries of life and the enduring associations at home, where every now and then seen issuing from the gates of their native cities, deprived of every possession, and with melancholy and slow steps dragging their wearied limbs to the nearest asylum offered them, thence to commence a new career of dependence and poverty, to endure to the end of their lives, or until some lucky accident should enable them to change places with their enemies, making those the sufferers who were late the tyrants. In that country, where each town formed an independent state, to change one for the other was to depart from the spot cherished as a country and a home for distant banishment. Or worse, for as each city entertained either hatred or contempt for its neighbor, it often happened that the morning exile was obliged to take up his abode among a people whom he had injured or scoffed. Foreign service offered a resource to the young and bold among the men, but lovely Italy was to be left, the ties of young hearts severed, and all the endearing associations of kin and country broken and scattered forever. The Italians were always peculiarly susceptible to these misfortunes. They loved their native walls, the abodes of their ancestors, the familiar scenes of youth, with all the passionate fervor characteristic of that time. It was therefore no uncommon thing for anyone among them, like Foscari of Venice, to prefer destitution and danger in their own city to a precarious subsistence among strangers in distant lands, or, if compelled to quit the beloved precincts of their native walls, still to hover near, ready to avail themselves of the first occasion that should present itself for reversing the decree that condemned them to misery. For three days and nights there had been warfare in the streets of Siena. Blood flowed in torrents, yet the cries and groans of the fallen but excited their friends to avenge them not their foe's despair. On the fourth morning, Ugo Mancini, with a scanty band of followers, was driven from the town. Succours from Florence had arrived for his enemies, and he was forced to yield. Burning with rage, writhing with an impotent thirst for vengeance, Ugo went round to the neighboring villages to rouse them, not against his native town, but the victorious Ptolemy. Unsuccessful in these endeavors, he next took the more equivocal step of seeking warlike aid from the Pisans. But Florence kept Pisa in check, 
and Ugo found only an inglorious refuge where he had hoped to acquire active allies. He had been wounded in these struggles, but animated by his superhuman spirit, he had forgotten his pain and surmounted his weakness. Nor was it until a cold refusal was returned to his energetic representations that he sank beneath his physical sufferings. He was stretched on a bed of torture when he received intelligence that an edict of perpetual banishment and confiscation of property was passed against him. His two children, beggars now, were sent to him. His wife was dead, and these were all of near relations that he possessed. His bitter feelings were still too paramount for him to receive comfort from their presence, and these agitated and burning emotions appeared in after times a remnant of happiness compared to the total loss of every hope, the wasting inaction of sickness and of poverty. For five years, Hugo Mancini lay stretched on his couch, alternating between states of intense pain and overpowering weakness, and then he died. During this interval, the wreck of his fortunes, consisting of the rent of a small farm and the use of some money lent, scantily supported him. His few relatives and followers were obliged to seek their subsistence elsewhere, and he remained alone to his pain and to his two children who yet clung to his paternal side. Hatred to his foes and love for his native town were the sentiments that possessed his soul and which he imparted in their full force to the plastic mind of his son, which received like molten metal the stamp he desired to impress. Lorenzo was scarcely twelve years old at the period of his father's exile, and he naturally turned with fondness towards the spot where he had enjoyed every happiness, where each hour had been spent in light-hearted hilarity, and the kindness and observance of many attended on his steps. Now how sad the contrast! dim penury, a solitude cheered by no encouraging smiles or sunny flatteries, perpetual attendance on his father and untimely cares cast their dark shadows over his altered lot. Lorenzo was a few years older than his sister, friendless and destitute as was the exile's family. It was he who overlooked its moderate disbursements, who was at once his father's nurse and his sister's guardian, and acted as the head of the family during the incapacity of the parent. But instead of being narrowed or broken in spirit by these burdens, his ardent soul rose to meet them, and grew enlarged and lofty from the very coals made upon it. His look was serious, not careworn, his manner calm, not humble. His voice had all the tenderness of a woman, his eye all the pride and fire of a hero. Still his unhappy father wasted away, and Lorenzo's hours were entirely spent beside his bed. He was indefatigable in his attentions. Weariness never seemed to overcome him. His limbs were always alert, his speech inspiring and kind. His only pastime was during any interval in his parents' sufferings, to listen to his eulogiums on his native town, and to the history of the wrongs which from time immemorial the Mancini had endured from the Ptolemy. Lorenzo, though replete with noble qualities, was still an Italian, and fervent love for his birthplace and violent hatred towards the foes of his house were the darling passions of his heart. Nursed in loneliness, they acquired vigor, and the nights he spent in watching his father 
were varied by musing on the career he should hereafter follow, his return to his beloved Siena, and the vengeance he would take on his enemies. Hugo often said, I die because I am an exile. At length, these words were fulfilled, and the unhappy man sank beneath the ills of fortune. Lorenzo saw his beloved father expire, his father whom he loved. He seemed to deposit in his obscure grave all that best deserved reverence and honor in the world. And turning away his steps, he lamented the loss of the sad occupation of so many years and regretted the exchange he made from his father's sickbed to a lonely and unprized freedom. The first use he made of the liberty he had thus acquired was to return to Siena with his sister. He entered his native town as if it were a paradise, and he found it a desert in all, save the hues of beauty and delight with which his imagination loved to invest it. There was no one to whom he could draw near in friendship within the whole circuit of its walls. According to the barbarous usage of the times, his father's palace had been razed, and the mournful ruins stood as a tomb to commemorate the fall of his fortunes. Not as such did Lorenzo view them. He often stole out at nightfall, when the stars alone beheld his enthusiasm, and clambering to the highest part of the massy fragments, spent long hours in mentally rebuilding the desolate walls, and in consecrating once again the weed-grown hearth to family love and hospitable festivity. It seemed to him that the air was more balmy and light, breathed amidst these memorials of the past, and his heart warmed with rapture over the tale they told of what his progenitors had been, but he again would be. Yet, had he viewed his position sanely, he would have found it full of mortification and pain, and he would have become aware that his native town was perhaps the only place in the world where his ambition would fall in the attainment of its aim. The Ptolemy reigned over it. They had led its citizens to conquest and enriched them with spoils. They were adored and to flatter them. The populace were prone to revile and scoff at the name of Mancini. Lorenzo did not possess one friend within its walls. He heard the murmur of hatred as he passed and beheld his enemies raised to the pinnacle of power and honor, and yet, so strangely framed as the human heart, that he continued to love Siena, and would not have exchanged his obscure and penurious abode within its walls to become the favored follower of the German emperor. Such a place, through education and the natural prejudices of man, did Siena hold in his imagination, that a lowly condition there seemed a nobler destiny, than to be great in any other spot. To win back the friendship of its citizens and humble his enemies was a dream that shed so sweet an influence over his darkened hours. He dedicated his whole being to this work, and he did not doubt but that he should succeed. The house of Ptolemy had for its chief a youth, but a year or two older than himself. With him, when an opportunity should present himself, he would enter the lists. It seemed the bounty of providence that gave him one so nearly equal with whom to contend, and during the interval that must elapse before they could clash, he was busy in educating himself for the struggle. Count Fabian de Ptolemy bore the reputation of being a youth full of promise and talent, 
and Lorenzo was glad to anticipate a worthy antagonist. He occupied himself in the practice of arms, and applied with perseverance to the study of the few books that fell in his way. He appeared in the marketplace on public occasions, modestly attired, and yet his height, his dignified carriage, and the thoughtful cast of his noble countenance drew the observation of the bystanders. Though such was the prejudice against his name and the flattery of the triumphant party that taunts and maledictions followed him. His nobility of appearance was called pride, his affability meanness, his aspiring views faction, and it was declared that it would be a happy day when he should no longer blot their sunshine with his shadow. Lorenzo smiled. He disdained to resent or even to feel the mistaken insults of the crowd, who, if fortune changed, would the next day throw up their caps for him. It was only when loftier foes approached that his brow grew dark, that he drew himself up to his full height, repaying their scorn with glances of defiance and hate. But although he was ready in his own person to encounter the contumely of his townsmen, and walked on with placid mien, regardless of their sneers, he carefully guarded his sister from such scenes. She was led by him each morning, closely veiled, to hear mass in an obscure church. And when, on feast days, the public walks were crowded with cavaliers and dames in splendid attire, and with citizens and peasants in their holiday garb, this gentle pair might be seen in some solitary and shady spot. Flora knew none to love except her brother. She had grown under his eyes from infancy, and while he attended on the sickbed of their father, he was father, brother, tutor, guardian to her. The fondest mother could not have been more indulgent, and yet there was mingled a something beyond pertaining to their difference of sex. Uniformly observant and kind, he treated her as if she had been a high-born damsel, nurtured in her gayest bower. Her attire was simple, but thus she was instructed it befitted every damsel to dress. Her needleworks were such as a princess might have emulated, and while she learned under her brother's tutelage to be reserved, studious of obscurity, and always occupied, she was taught that such were the virtues becoming her sex, and no idea of despondence or penury was raised in her mind. Had he been the sole human being that approached her, she might have believed herself to be on a level with the highest in the land. But coming in contact with dependents in the humble class of life, Flora became acquainted with her true position and learnt, at the same time, to understand and appreciate the unequaled kindness and virtues of her brother. Two years passed while brother and sister continued in obscurity and poverty, cherishing hope, honor, and mutual love. If an anxious thought ever crossed Lorenzo, it was for the future destiny of Flora, whose beauty as a child gave promise of perfect loveliness hereafter. For her sake, he was anxious to begin the career he had marked out for himself, and resolved no longer to delay his endeavors to revive his party in Siena, and to seek rather than avoid a contest with the young Count Fabian, on whose overthrow he would rise. Count Fabian, the darling of the citizens, vaunted as a model for a youthful cavalier, abounding in good qualities and so adorned by gallantry, subtle wit, and gay winning manners that he stepped by right of nature as well as birth 
on the pedestal which exalted him in the idol all around. It was on a day of public feasting that Lorenzo first presented himself in rivalship with Fabian. His person was unbeknown to the Count, who, in all the pride of rich dress and splendid accoutrement, looked with a smile of patronage on the poorly mounted and plainly attired youth who presented himself to run a tilt with him. But before the challenge was accepted, the name of his antagonist was whispered to Fabian. Then all the bitterness engendered by family feuds, all the spirit of vengeance which had been taught as a religion, arose at once in the young noble's heart. He wheeled round his steed and, riding rudely up to his competitor, ordered him instantly to retire from the course, nor dare to disturb the revels of the citizens by the hatred presence of a Mancini. Lorenzo answered with equal scorn, and Fabian, governed by uncontrollable passion, called together his followers to drive the youth with ignominy from the lists. A fearful array was mustered against the hateful intruder, but had their number been trebled, the towering spirit of Lorenzo had met them all. One fell, another was disabled by his weapon before he was disarmed and made prisoner, but his bravery did not avail to extract admiration from his prejudiced foes. They rather poured execrations on him for its disastrous effects as they hurried him to a dungeon and called loud for his punishment and death. Far from this scene of turmoil and bloodshed, in her poor but quiet chamber, in a remote and obscure part of the town, sat Flora, occupied by her embroidery, musing as she worked on her brother's project and anticipating his success. Hours passed and Lorenzo did not return. The day declined and still he tarried. Flora's busy fancy forged a thousand causes for the delay. Her brother's prowess had awakened the chilly zeal of the partisans of their family. He was doubtless feasting among them, and the first stone was laid for the rebuilding of their house. At last, a rush of steps upon the staircase and a confused clamor of female voices calling loudly for admittance made her rise and open the door. In rushed several women. Dismay was painted on their faces. Their words flowed in torrents. Their eager gestures helped them to a meaning. And though not without difficulty, amidst the confusion, Flora heard of the disaster and imprisonment of her brother, of the bloodshed by his hand and the fatal issue that such a deed ensured. She grew pale as marble. Her young heart was filled with speechless terror. She could form no image of the thing she dreaded, but its indistinct idea was full of fear. Renzo was in prison. Count Fabian had placed him there. He was to die. Overwhelmed for a moment by such tidings, yet she rose above their benumbing power, and without proffering a word or Listening to the questions and remonstrances of the women, she rushed past them, down the high staircase into the street, then was swift pace to where the public prison was situated. She knew the spot she wished to reach, but she had so seldom quitted her home that she soon got entangled among the streets and proceeded onwards at random. Breathless at length, she paused before the lofty portal of a large palace. No one was near. 
The fast-fading twilight of an Italian evening had deepened into absolute darkness. At this moment, the glare of flambeau was thrown upon the street, and a party of horsemen rode up. They were talking and laughing gaily. She heard one addressed as Count Fabian. She involuntarily drew back with instinctive hate, and then rushed forward and threw herself at his horse's feet, exclaiming, "'Save my brother!' The young cavalier reined up shortly his prancing steed, angrily reproving her for her heedlessness, and without deigning another word, entered the courtyard. He had not, perhaps, heard her prayer. He could not see the sup. He spoke but in the impatience of the moment, but the poor child, deeply wounded by what had the appearance of a personal insult, turned proudly from the door, repressing the bitter tears that filled her eyes. Still she walked on, but night took from her every chance of finding her way to the prison, and she resolved to return home to engage one of the women of the house, of which she occupied a part, to accompany her. But even to find her way back became matter of difficulty, and she wandered on, discovering no clue to guide her, and far too timid to address anyone she might chance to meet. Fatigue and personal fear were added to her other griefs, and tears streamed plentifully down her cheeks, as she continued her hopeless journey. At length, at the corner of a street, she recognized an image of the Madonna in a niche, with a lamp burning over it, familiar to her recollection as being near her home. With characteristic piety, she knelt before it in thankfulness, and was offering a prayer for Lorenzo, when the sound of steps made her start up, and her brother's voice hail, and her brother's arms encircled her. It seemed a miracle, but he was there and all her fears were ended. We'll continue this story on our next episode. I want to remind you that we're always on the lookout for great public domain stories to read. And if you know of any, please email bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel for you to listen to all through the night. tiny.cc slash bvjbedtime Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a Buy Me A Coffee link on every page and post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs)